From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. Two Michigan parents have been arrested after their son shot and killed four students. The Rittenhouse not guilty verdict triggers the media and anti-gun activists. Marijuana and guns continue to be a confusing issue in Ohio. And do you have a plan to handle the legal aftermath of armed self-defense? You should. That's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek executive director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by attorney and firearm expert, Sean Maloney. Hi, Sean. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me again, Dean. So, uh, Sean, we record these uh, in audio only, but we're, we're actually Zooming it so I can see you, and it looks like you're standing in a room with a lot of ammo. Have you been reloading recently? Yeah, that's that, that's kind of a hobby of mine, and since um, uh, it was hard to find on the store shelves, I decided that I would uh, hunker down in my in my reloading room and enjoy myself and and uh, go full force on my hobby. And it kind of is over. It's kind of overgrowing me, overwhelming me. Yeah, I see. You've got the heavy duty shelves there. You, I think you have more ammo than I do. Uh, I've I've got some nine millimeter and twenty two and. Just a little of this and a little of that, but I don't think I have the quantities that you have. You see, you've been well, you've been a busy little beaver. Yes, I'm, I have a little bit of this and a little bit of that also. Unfortunately, all my guns were lost in the boating accident, so I'm not sure what to do. <laughs> all right, uh, I won't question that. <laughs> so, Sean, I wanted you on here because there's a lot going on in the news, and one of the big things that's going on right now is this Oxford High School murder case in Michigan. I'll admit I've not really followed this very much, but I understand that four students were killed. The teenager has been arrested. I'm not going to say his name because we do not make killers famous on this podcast. But his parents have also been arrested. Now, that seems pretty unusual. Have you seen a case where parents have been arrested in a shooting like this? You know, the Dean, that's a good question. And I thought back and did a little research as far as I could tell uh, with certainly all the most recent uh, back to Sandy Hook and even before that in Columbine. And I cannot recall and, and I can't find any evidence of a parent or parents being arrested, uh, such as what occurred in this case. So it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, certainly, it'll, it'll change the prosecutions for things like this. And um, uh, and I guess you would think that would try to their probably intent is to make the parents a little bit more vigilant when it comes to their kids and what's happening with their, with their children. And in this case, there may be some indication that the it was a recently purchased firearm and uh, uh, the shooter had access to it, although the, the attorneys for the father uh, said that was untrue. It was locked up. So, again, very early, the facts kind of um, uh, are out just enough to get the parents arrested. And what was interesting about that is the attorney said that the parents were in a warehouse district kind of hiding out, but just getting their financial affairs together. And the attorneys had contacted the police and the prosecutor's office and informed them they were going to turn them in the following day. Uh, but it were, there was a, a late evening, early morning raid 
that, that, that arrested them. So I happened to catch the arraignment this morning. It was on TV. Yeah, I think we need to be careful. I mean, we're seeing in this case what we see in a lot of these cases. People want to make up their minds really fast. The media get details wrong. So, uh, you know, I'm withholding judgment. I honestly don't know what actually happened here as far as the parents are concerned. And I would uh, I would caution everyone else to withhold judgment, uh, too. I mean, I, I've, I have seen some commentators out there already criticizing these parents, and, and we just don't know the details yet. No, we don't. And I think if, if Rittenhouse can teach us one thing, uh, I think it was more so that uh, the media intentionally deceived, uh, set the narrative. I don't know if that was the taint the jury pool or what it was all about. And But thankfully, the jury w- was a strong jury, and they seemed to ignore everything that came out from our president, who was running at the time, make, uh, calling him a white supremacist. And then, um, then the media just flat out getting the facts wrong or, or embellishing the facts against them. So you're right. We're doing the right thing. We don't know the facts. This is the very beginning of it. Obviously it's a tragedy. Uh, kids, kids have, uh, uh, were killed, uh, 14 and 17 year olds. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a shame. And, uh, and we're doing the right thing by, by not bringing up any facts because we just don't know and they'll play out. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Rittenhouse case. Uh, we've done a whole podcast on that and I have followed that case pretty closely. In fact, I, I didn't watch all of the trial, but I watched a lot of it. So uh, Rittenhouse was found not guilty on all counts. I think there were five counts in the end. There was a gun charge that was removed. And, you know, we talked about the dirty tricks and the lies that the prosecution used. It wasn't just the media who was who were lying about this. The prosecution clearly were just in court telling lies. Did you watch any of that trial? I watched portions of that, and when my uh, fellow attorneys would call me and and tell me what the uh, the prosecution had tried to do, had just done, I uh, I had a place where I'd go to and, and rewind it, so to speak, and watch it. And at this point in time, I'm hopeful that the judge will sanction and that the bar will discipline this prosecutor because uh, you don't do what he did. It makes us all look bad. It's not good for the system. You know, you don't comment. On, uh, on, on somebody's silence or refusal to testify. And then also when the court specifically gives rulings on motions and they bring it up uh, and they, it, they brought it up for one reason, and that was the tainted jury pool, because you can't unhear something, even though the judge is going to admonish the, the jury uh, not to take that into consideration. I think the judge did a very good job. Prosecution, I think from the beginning, had nothing, did not have the proof, didn't have the facts on their side, didn't have the witnesses on their side. And certainly when, um, uh, you know, we've talked in the past about always being on film. The last thing I expected was to have drone drone footage. So you you never know what's going to happen. And and, But you can uh, feel good about the fact that I believe uh, that the jury system worked in this case. I mean, think about it, Dean. These folks weren't sequestered. They had the opportunity to hear everything, and they were well aware of the fact that there were hundreds of people protesting outside of that courthouse. And if they came up with, so uh, so to speak, the wrong verdict to that crowd, there could be problems. Uh, their lives were threatened. The judge's life were threatened. MSNBC's following them home. Uh, and so everything you could possibly do to, to try to taint the jury pool. Uh, and they took the facts into consideration. And and and, uh, and I felt good about that fact that the jury the jury could still ignore all that stuff. Yeah, I mean the video was really interesting in this case because a lot of people think, well, if you have video, that's going to help you convict people. 
Well, no, if you have video and lots of video from different angles, that's going to help you get to the facts of the case. That's what happened here. And despite what they tried to do to Rittenhouse, and I'll I'll just say that it was they were just clearly lying and making up evidence mm-hmm. as they went along. The video just didn't didn't show that. And I think the jury believed their eyes. They did not believe the prosecution. But what, what I'm seeing a lot of right now is there's a lot of anger on the left about the verdict, and they're trying to find a way to say that Rittenhouse was guilty of something, regardless right. of what the jury found, a lot of victim-blaming. Why do you think there's so much opposition to this? Why is this so threatening to people? I, I think, Dean, uh, and, and I thought about this a lot, this was a lot more about the right that, that, uh, that Rittenhouse had to use lethal force and self-defense because, and I can only hope that if, if I was in the same situation he was, that I could react as good as he did. Boy, what a mature level and, and, and that he did. But it's not about Rittenhouse. It's about you and I and every gun owner out there and our ability to protect ourselves against mobs and our ability to, to use a firearm to protect ourselves or anything in lethal force when the police can't be there. And I think they were trying to scare us all away. Because all of a sudden, if Rittenhouse is convicted, guess what? We, we're, we're helpless against the mobs. We're helpless against the people that are attacking us in our homes uh, or our businesses. If we think back to Rodney King and the Koreans on the roofs of their stores protecting themselves, where they, that that's essentially puts an end to that. And so I think it went deeper than just Rittenhouse. I think it was, was, tr- was trying to be a shot against law-abiding gun owners and their ability to protect themselves in, in situations like this that are happening more often than not. And that my fear is that these protests, uh, these riots, whatever you want to call them, or, or as the media would say, these these almost all peaceful demonstrations uh, are going to come to the suburbs. And that affects a lot of us. So I think more often than not, in this case, it, it was much broad, broader and they were using Rittenhouse to get there. Yeah, the prosecution actually used the argument. Uh, and this is, I believe, a direct quote. Everybody takes a beating Sometimes their argument was, well, you know, every now and then you're going to get attacked. Every now and then you're going to get the snot beat out of you. But what you don't do is is pull a firearm. And they, they tried to argue that because Rittenhouse brought a gun, because he had a firearm, that made him the antagonist, just the presence of the firearm. And that everyone was justified in attacking him. If I go to uh, the grocery store and I happen to be open carrying, that's enough to trigger everyone around me. They're afraid of me and they can attack me and I cannot defend myself. That was their argument. And and that's what they want. They want you and I and everybody else listening to be helpless. Um, They don't want us to have the ability to fight back and protect ourselves. And I'm not sure to what end that that. Uh, that protects any of us or, or, or what their motive is behind that. But obviously with the, with the testimony for the prosecution, with things said after this trial, uh, that, that's their motive and that's what they want to accomplish. And, and they're not done yet. Uh, they're getting more and more brazen, uh, everything related to the gun issue. And if you've noticed, they poured it on over the f- past few years and they haven't quit. Uh, but you know what? You don't hear a whole lot about, uh, uh, the bad people that run over people with cars, you don't want to you know, try to do anything about that. They don't want to talk about this ridiculously low bail set that are letting people free. Uh, they don't want to talk about the no bail set uh, that are letting people free. They don't want to talk about, well, you know, you can steal all you want just so you don't go over a thousand dollars. And it's hard to believe how society is breaking down or at least um, 
justice part, criminal stuff, and and law-abiding citizens. Yeah, I heard, and I haven't confirmed this, Sean, but I heard on a newscast, I believe, that if you look at Cleveland, they've had more homicides than Chicago. Uh, and, And that may have been last year. And that's really shocking that we're reaching that level. And uh, and I've been interviewed by the media, and they all, they'll all ask these questions. You know, why are we seeing seeing you know the, the violent crime go up so much? You know, like when we're looking at last year. And I'd say, well, you know, if you're not enforcing the law, if, if the police are standing down, if your city leaders are basically saying, you know, don't try to defend yourself, don't go after the bad guys, don't arrest people, don't prosecute people. What kind of effect do you think that's going to have on criminals? Well, and that's that's where it's all starting from, Dean. You're exactly right. We're going to defund the police. We're not going to respect the police. We're not going to support the police. We're going to take away their power to enforce the laws. We're not going to prosecute the people they arrest. And the, the criminals know this. The criminals also know that that they're if they get arrested, they're going to be let out. There's not going to be a bond, or the bond amount is going to be so low that it's going to be ridiculous. And, uh, and you're probably right about the, the homicide rate in Cleveland, because I can tell you uh, with a second call defense uh, client that I have that, that used lethal force and self-defense last February, talking to the prosecutors and talking to the homicide detectives, they are so busy in Columbus, more shootings than they've ever had, more killings they've ever had in Columbus before. And they're basically up half the night investigating crimes in jail, in, in trial during the day, they get a little bit of sleep and they start it all over again. Uh, the prosecutors are so busy uh, with violent crimes that, you know, it, it takes them days to get uh, to return a phone call or, or get a hold of me. And I think it's um, it's an effect from all sides. When, when you talk about defunding the police, when you decide you're going to be lenient, when you're not going to set proper bail amounts, the, the criminals are thinking, you know what, I have nothing to lose. And, and keep in mind, uh, a lot of these people are already recidivists. And so if they got arrested last week and they're and they're paroled or they're put out on um uh, on no bond or on ROR or on a thousand dollar ten percent bond, and they're out the next day. They're they're not going to all of a sudden say, "Boy, did I get lucky? I better be a good boy or a good girl." That's not going to happen, and uh, and that's why I think the violent crimes are increasing because they feel they can act with impunity, and to a certain extent, in a lot of cases, they are. Yeah, Sean, um, I want to turn just for a moment. There's an issue that in Ohio continues to be confusing. We get some questions about this on a pretty routine basis, and it involves marijuana. There was a bill about five years ago that legalized medical marijuana in Ohio, and a control board was set up. And basically, the way it works is you can apply to get an ID card that says that as long as you have that card, you have a recommendation from a physician that you can have medical marijuana, and in the state that's perfectly legal. The problem is for gun owners, because while the state says that medical marijuana is legal here in Ohio, federal law continues to list marijuana as a Schedule I controlled substance. So that means if you have marijuana, technically you cannot have guns legally. You can't do both at the same time. And right on the ATF form, the 4473 that you fill out, either physically or electronically, every time you buy a firearm, says very clearly that you can't have marijuana and guns at the same time. And, and, and I'll read it. It asks you, are you an unlawful user of or addicted to marijuana? 
or any depressant, stimulant, narcotic drug, or any other controlled substance. And then a few years ago, there was a warning added to it, and it says, warning, the use or possession of marijuana remains unlawful under federal law, regardless of whether it has been legalized or decriminalized for medical or recreational purposes in the state where you reside. So the federal government is not backing down from this. Regardless of what they do in a state, the Fed is still saying marijuana is illegal and you can't have guns and marijuana at the same time. Sean, what kind of trouble can you get into if you happen to have a medical marijuana card and you also own firearms? It can it can cause a, a lot of problems. Number one, if you go in to purchase a firearm and you fill out the four, form forty four seventy three, you have to keep in mind if you have a medical marijuana card and the doctor or the the official has prescribed you marijuana for, for your illness, the fact that does not matter as far as the federal government is concerned. You are still an unlawful user because it is illegal under federal law to possess and or use that controlled substance. So the fact that it, it's legal in the state of Ohio does not really matter uh, to the federal government. That's a schedule one substance uh, and, and there's no way around it. And, and it just, just depends upon, you know, how far the, the feds are going to go and push that. And certainly uh, I guarantee you that if the ATF or FBI arrest somebody uh, for another, for some other reason, find out that are otherwise not under a, a disability to own a firearm, but but they are actively using marijuana under a prescription from the medical marijuana card. They're going to get busted for that also. Uh, it's a it's a pretty big deal and it's a big problem. And there's other problems with uh, that fact that the Ohio Revised Code and certain sections need to catch up with the fact that that's that's legal now. Uh, medical marijuana is legal in the state of Ohio, and there's really no no way around it. So if you have a card, a medical marijuana card. You have two choices. You can be honest and say, yeah, I use marijuana, but then you're not going to pass the background check. Or, or you can lie and you can say, no, you don't have marijuana and you'll probably pass the background check. But then if you're caught, you're screwed. You're, you're screwed uh, under the, the firearms laws. And you're also screwed because you perjured yourself on the form 4473 and you lied. So uh, right there is, is two different crimes that, that, you, that you can be arrested for and prosecuted for. And, and like I said, uh, if the code needs to catch up with itself, the federal government needs to, to make a determination. And honestly, I, I'm surprised that that hasn't been brought up. Maybe there's bigger fish to fry and they're not concerned about that. But, but certainly if uh, I had a legitimate reason to, to use uh, marijuana uh, with this THC for a medical problem, and I was also a gun owner and wanted to protect myself, uh, you know, you got a decision to make and you would think that the federal government w- w- has a decision to make also. I think probably the laws with marijuana are certainly antiquated. Uh, maybe they are, maybe they're not just because, you know, all the, you know, a large number of states in the United States have decided that both recreationally and medically it's okay to do. Uh, uh, the federal government either has to catch up uh, or the states need to do something to, to, to make sure they're protecting their citizenry. Uh, from federal overreach at that point in time. What's really behind this? Because, I mean, we have a lot of states that have legalized it. We have medical marijuana here. The the public's opinion has changed on this pretty dramatically. Everybody has their own opinion about it. I'm I'm kind of agnostic about it. I'd be fine if they legalized it. I'm not a user. I don't care one way or another. But it does not appear from the research I've seen that it is 
a gateway drug. Now, some people will argue that, but the, at least the research I've seen. So what's really behind, on the federal level, keeping it as a Schedule One substance when so many areas around the United States want to legalize it? What, is there some reason that they want to keep that on the Schedule One? I think probably uh, it's a great investigatory tool for the FBI, for the ATF. It's a crime. Uh, it's like uh, before we got knife rights in Ohio. It was, it was a, just something uh, to go forward with a reason of articulable suspicion of criminal activity with a pocket knife. Well, if you're doing any type of drug investigation or any type of investigation, uh, I think the, um, the ATF uh, and the FBI and law enforcement likes to have that in their pocket uh, because I think it's so common. It's, it, it's, it's always going to give them probable cause. They find a joint, they find a roach, whatever they find in the car or in a home uh, to go forward. And I, I think basically... As a tool for law enforcement, they, they like to have that, I think, is probably the biggest thing. Uh, and again, maybe the government hasn't moved. I mean, harken back to the Nancy Reagan, Dean, just say no. Um, you know, it, it's a, you know, it's always been a campaign. It's been a huge issue, even with marijuana, uh, like you said, as a gateway drug and, and uh, for any other purpose. But I, I think those laws are old and antiquated. I think medical science and certainly medical science has proven uh, that all those fears, um, you know, should be set aside now. But I think it is, it's just another reason, a reasonable articulable suspicion of criminal activity to go farther, farther and tear somebody's car apart. Uh, or uh, when you do a search warrant or they're entering and they're, they're having a discussion and they, they find the marijuana and they see it so commonly, it allows them to continue on with their investigation. And probably, I, I think probably, uh, there's quite a bit of money that's made by arresting people through the court system by finding people uh, and whatnot because of that. Although I do feel that the probably jails are way too full to be putting people in jail. But keep in mind, there's people serving life sentences for for marijuana. So, yeah, I, I, something needs to be done about that at some point, but that's at the federal mm -hmm. level. Right. And before we get emails, yeah, I know that constitutional carry is going to solve a lot of problems in Ohio, but it's not going to solve this problem because nope. this is a problem at the federal level. We can pass all the laws we want in Ohio. We cannot override federal law. So if you've got a medical marijuana card uh, and you have firearms, you know— you're just in a bad place. Uh, there's, there's no, there's no getting around it until the federal law changes. You're taking a risk. And who knows? I mean, we like to think that HIPAA is going to protect the medical marijuana card. I'm not sure. We like to think that the fact that we have concealed carry permits uh, isn't searchable. Uh, but I think who knows, you know, when all of a sudden the ATF gets a list of people with medical marijuana cards and they have the opportunity to run to get against 4473s. And I guarantee you, uh, if they're conducting an investigation dealing with firearms, um, they're probably going to find a way, try to find a way to uh, tie firearm use in, into drug use. Because again, that's just another crime or another, another charge they can hang on somebody. So there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of different reasons how you can get trouble uh, with uh, something that seems innocuous, uh, you know, just a joint or just smoking a joint. And like, again, like you said, all of a sudden people say, Hey, it's legal in the state of Ohio. I, I have a, I have a card. A doctor says I need this. Well, you're not going to stop the federal government and it doesn't do anything to shield you against the federal government, no matter how remote the possibility is that, that they'll, that they'll find out about it. So we talked a little bit about Rittenhouse a few minutes ago. I want to circle back to this idea of self-defense 
and the law because Rittenhouse got himself in some real trouble. And regardless of what you might think about Rittenhouse himself, and, I, and I'll be honest with you, if this were my kid and I knew he was going to go to the scene of a riot, I would have grabbed him and I said, no, you're not. Stay home. That's not a good idea. If you know there's going to be a riot, don't go to the riot. But that had nothing to do with the self-defense claim. So it was really the self-defense claim that, that got him in trouble. So I want to talk uh, briefly about that. Sean, you are a defense attorney. You deal with this kind of stuff. What's the most serious legal threat that most people face immediately after using a firearm in self-defense? That you're going to be arrested, you're going to be taken to jail, and you're going to be treated uh, as the defendant, not the victim in that case. And under the law, the person that, that uses a firearm of self-defense, it's a affirmative defense of self-defense, you're considered the defendant, and the person, good, bad, or indifferent, they use the firearm against is, in fact, the victim. And so prosecution uh, is the biggest threat that you face. And I dare say that depending upon what state you're in and who the prosecutor is, I promise you, Joe Dieter from Hamilton County never would have prosecuted Rittenhouse. It never would have been done. They would have looked at the looked at the facts of the case. There would have been no bill by the grand jury and, and it would have went away. And you and I have talked about this all the time. It all often depends upon the jurisdiction and where you happen to be in the United States when you when you legally use a firearm. That changes everything. Um I think uh, the, and the biggest legal threat we face is the fact that we're going to be arrested. We're going to be in jail. He was in jail for over 80 days. He had a ridiculous $2 million bond set. Um, so worst case scenario, well, well, he had the worst case scenario. And that happens more often than not, depending upon where the jurisdiction is. And, um, and of course, uh, many people got together and bonded him out. I think people online donations for his, uh, his defense costs and fees. But think about it, it's something similar where I use a farm of self-defense in Cleveland, Ohio, nobody's going to uh, fund a GoFund page for me. I'm just some old guy. Uh, so you oh, know, I'll, I'll, throw, I'll throw in two or three dollars, Sean. Yeah. See, well, you know what? And if, the, if you can get two or three million of your friends to do that, then we'll be all set. <laughs> but I might be able to raise maybe six or seven dollars for you. <laughs> hey, that's a start. And I feel good about that. So what's the biggest mistake most people make? The biggest mistake that, that most people make is they don't think ahead of time of the consequences of, of, of legally using a firearm in self-defense. Again, just because you did everything you have a legal right to do, views are so polarized on firearms anyhow as it is. And the situation of each, ca each case and the fact that you were having an affirmative defense and have to prove uh, you know, that, that you're not at fault that you properly use self-defense. And I think people walk into... Uh, to either a, a concealed carry class or they get, they get their concealed carry permit and they start carrying a firearm and they uh, ignore the fact that uh, there's a huge amount of both criminal liability and civil liability for anybody who uses a firearm in self-defense, good, bad, or indifferent. It doesn't matter how, how proper that you did that. You still have a prosecutor that can decide, you know what, not in my county. And so I think the biggest mistake is that we ignore the fact that there can be some wide-ranging consequences after we do it, we have a legal right to do. Uh, it's Can you imagine doing everything legally you had a right to do and your attorneys are telling you you did everything you had a legal right to do, yet you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, days in jail to defend yourself? And I think uh, we as law-abiding gun owners, sometimes we forget the fact 
that oftentimes the deck is stacked against us. Now, Sean, you co-founded an organization called Second Call Defense that deals with things just like this because people do find themselves in, in that situation. Full disclosure, you and I have both been directly involved with that organization. Mm-hmm. Buckeye Firearms Association does promote Second Call Defense. Just wanted to get that out there. So there might be a little bias here when we're talking about this. But I I do think it's wise for people to have some kind of plan to be ready because it's too late after you've used your firearm to suddenly figure out who you're going to call, what you're going to do, how you're going to fund it. Can you explain how Second Call Defense works? What's the idea behind this? Well, when you and I and and the rest of us got together and we started Second Call Defense, we realized there's a need. Uh, In my position as a criminal defense attorney, Time after time after time, I realized that uh, my clients who did everything they had a legal right to do, tried to avoid everything and were forced to use uh, a weapon in uh, in self-defense, always find themselves having to to, to prove their innocence at that point in time. And some of the biggest problems are uh, you get a phone call, uh, you brandish the firearm, and all of a sudden you're charged with felonious assault. It's a $100,000 bond. And... So you need to have that $10,000 right now in the state of Ohio. And I've had clients that I've went door to door for trying to get that money together. And I started thinking there's got to be a better way. So what we did is we started a membership organization that as part of its component has civil protection for civil lawsuits and criminal protection for criminal lawsuits. I was on a podcast uh, yesterday, Dean, and the individual talked about how they're prepared uh, uh, in case they use a firearm in self-defense. They have an envelope with cash in it, uh, with a second call defense card in it and with people to call. And this individual has his wife have it. And I said, you know what? You don't need that because all you need is your second call defense membership card. You call the, the 1-800 number, the emergency hotline. We have all the contact information for, for emergency contacts. We contact everybody you need. If, uh, if you're being detained from police, we're on the phone with you, uh, every step of the way while the police are conducting their investigation. If the police decide to take you in, uh, you have a second call defense attorney either with you or on the phone uh, while the police are conducting their investigation. You have immediate money uh, for a retainer fee for uh, the best attorney in the area. You have money immediately available for you to bond yourself out. You have money available for continuing uh, litigation costs. Uh, Also, you never know how we're going to react. Uh, and he obviously you saw Rittenhouse crying on the stand. He, he's going to be damaged forever. And, and he's, he's seeing counsel right now. Well, second call defense also provides money uh, for a psychologist or psychiatrist of your choice. We even provide cleanup of your house. If the incident occurs in your house, we give you the ability to, um, uh, to, to do the cleanup. And, uh, and it just goes beyond that. So basically with second call defense, now you have to, you have to be a member and so you, right. once you're a member, you have the membership card and there's a number on that card, something bad happens. And I believe the, the advice that you give, Sean, is that you call 911 first and then you call second call defense second. That's why it's called second call defense because that's your second call. And then you guys basically swing into action and take care of all the details. Is that, that's a good summary? That- Yep, that's exactly right. That that's that's what we do, and and uh, more often than not, I get that emergency call in the middle of the night or in the, in the afternoon. It doesn't matter when it comes in, and um, generally speaking, the nine one one call doesn't take that long. 
Uh, and, and then I'm on the phone and I'm often on the phone for 20 or 30 minutes, 20 or 30 minutes before the police arrive. Uh, uh, the last case that we had was in New Carlisle, Ohio, where the, uh, a worker was mopping up. He worked at a Papa John's pizza po- uh, parlor and two people broke in at the end of the night with weapons screaming, we're going to kill you. And, uh, our member used the uh, firearm and self-defense and stopped the threat and called 911. And several other members working in the pizza shop called 911. And uh, I talked to our, our member. The police uh, showed up to scene. I talked to the police officer. They put the second call to defense member in the back of a cruiser for his own safety while they were conducting the investigation. And I talked with him on the phone for 45 minutes. And, um, and basically, they gave him a ride home. And then uh, I showed up a, a day later, and, and, and uh, they interviewed her client. And um, and he was released to go home. No charges were filed, and and, and he was cleared then immediately. But uh, with different situations, whether it's brandishing, uh, threatening to use a firearm, or actually using the firearm, we're, we're there for you. And also, Dean, I don't want to forget to say that recently we st- we provided coverage now for any illegal weapon. It's just not a firearm. Uh, in today's age and what's happening with all the riots and everything, if it's your car as a weapon. Uh, if it's a baseball bat, no matter what it is, we're going to defend our members. We, we see the changing times. We see the unpredictability of what happens out there. And so uh, you and I and, and the other partners of Sentinel Call Defense, we, we made that change. So I want to let everybody know that it's just not a firearm now. It's any legal weapon. Joining Second Call Defense is pretty easy. I helped with the website to create that. So you can just go to secondcalldefense.org and sign up. You can also sign up through uh, Buckeye Firearms Association. Sean, I, I assume that uh, you guys are still doing the first month free. Are you still offering that to people? Yep, that's correct. Uh, the first month free. Uh, and we, want, we don't want anybody not to have protection because they're not sure uh, about what it's all about. So sign up uh, and we'll send you a check for your first month payment and, and try it out. Get in the members only section of the website. Uh, and see what it's like to, to go to bed at night knowing that, that someone has your back and that you're protected if you should ever be, ever be forced to, to use a weapon in self-defense. And if you want to get that first month free, just a little promo here, uh, go to secondcalldefense.org. When you do sign up, there's a little box. It's a promo code box. And just put BFA for Buckeye Firearms Association, BFA in there, and that will tell them that you want that first month free. And Buckeye Firearms Association will get a little uh, little kickback from that to support our work here in Ohio. So you can do good on the legislative front. You can do good on the legal front. You can help yourself. It basically is a good deal for everybody. It offers protection uh, on the front end uh, with Buckeye Firearms working every day to protect your farmers' rights in the state of Ohio. And then with Second Call Defense. Uh, working every day to make sure that if you're forced to use a weapon in self-defense, that you have proper legal protection uh, uh, from, I think you, you coined the term, from trigger to trial. I, I am the clever guy. <laughs> trigger <laughs> I, to trial. I believe, I believe, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that Dean also created the, the, the name of the company, Second Call Defense. Yeah, we went through a lot of different names trying to figure out what that is, and we just kept talking about, you kept saying, that 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 should be your second call. So it just seemed yep. to me pretty obvious that it explained how it works, 
and was a pretty memorable name as well. Well, Sean, as always, thanks for being on the podcast. Glad you could be here to explain some of these legal issues and talk about some of the current events. And I hope to have you, have you back again soon. Just give me a call, Dean, and, uh, and thanks for everything you do also. It's very important work you've been doing. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at BuckeyeFirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to JoinBFA.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's JoinBFA.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.